Good morning, everyone. Won't you open in your Bibles with me to the book of James? We're going to be in James chapter 1 from verses 9 to 12, uh, but I'm going to read from verse 2 through to 12 before we pray. James 1 verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man and stable in all his ways. Let the, lowly brother let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray. Lord, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word remains forever. And so we come before you today and we ask that your word again would do what it was intended to do, that you would work through your spirit, that, that you would work on our hearts. And in our hearts, Lord, we pray that this passage would produce more love for you and that you would direct our attention again to your love for us. We ask in your holy name. Amen. Has anybody here ever experienced um, anxiety over money problems? Maybe you weren't sure if your money would stretch to the end of the month or if you'd be able to pay for school or for college. Maybe even you weren't sure if you would be able to pay for food. Anybody been there before? Has anybody ever had anxiety over money problems but your problem was that you had too much money? I didn't think so. That's why I found the, this article quite amusing. It was written by a senior business reporter for, the, for NBC News, and the title of the article is this, Wealth Therapists Help the 1% with Their Money Guilt. And the article writer says this, Well, an uneven economic recovery has left many worried they don't have enough money. A much, much smaller number is fretting they have too much. Good thing there's wealth therapists to help these members of the 1% work through their particular emotional dilemma. It's not a new phenomenon, but Bloomberg Businessweek recently highlighted the tale of a 21-year-old college student whose world was rocked after his father unveiled a family secret. They were actually the rich owners of a multinational corporation. Manhattan wealth therapist Clay Cockrell told Businessweek this kicked off an identity crisis for his patient. He wasn't mentally prepared. No one could be, Cockrell says. 
He didn't know who to trust and didn't want his friends to think he was suddenly different, so he didn't tell anyone. Four years later, the patient is still working through his identity crisis while training to take a managerial position at his father's company. He impulsively bought a really fancy car, but he doesn't want people to see it, Cockrell says, so he's keeping it in a garage. Rates for these specialists can range up to $500 an hour. At those levels, they might need to start hiring Skrilla shrinks of their own. It may be uncommon to face an identity crisis and experience anxiety because you have too much money, but self-identities being tied to socioeconomic standing and status in the world is not uncommon. In a world where people can't see beyond earthly things, identity is tied to those earthly things, and people find their worth in what they own and in their power and in their influence or skill in the workplace or, or what the bottom line is on their salary slip. And people assess one another and assign value based on those same earthly criteria. Deference is shown to the celebrity, to the movers and the shakers, while the lowly in the world are often ignored and pushed aside. And the temptation, even for Christians, is to enter into those same anxiety-producing systems where people matter because of a worldly standard of success. The temptation is to join the world and clinging to earthly possessions in order for those things to give our lives purpose, meaning, and value. And James is inviting us in this passage to something else for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of being the, the countercultural people of God. He aims to recalibrate our perceptions about our money and our status and what really provides our identity. He calls us to see with different eyes, eyes different to the world's eyes, and to assess our earthly status not by the world's criteria, not with the temporal, not with earthly vision, but with eyes fixed on eternal realities. James wants us to see ourselves and to see those around us with heaven's eyes. Now, he's been writing about seeking wisdom to endure life's trials, and we certainly need God's wisdom and help in order to see our money, our possessions, our status in this world rightly. James will help us in three ways. In, in verses 9 to 10, he gives us a call. In verse 11, he gives us a warning. And in verse 12, there's a promise. That's where we're going today. Number one, the call. The call, James's call is this, boast like a believer, boast like a believer. To help the church lift its eyes from worldly systems of status, James gives two commands in verses 9 to 10, and they, you read them and they make you scratch your head a little bit and ask, what do these mean? What is James saying here? They are paradoxical, intended to make you think intended to reflect on the, the upside-downness of the world's system and the nature of real reality. G.K. Chesterton once gave this excellent definition of a paradox. He said this, A paradox is a truth standing on its head, shouting for attention. 
In other words, look at me, look at me, it cries. Down is up and up is down. That's the point of a paradox. And scripture is full of these kinds of paradoxes that, that are intended to break the spell of the world's grip on our hearts as we meditate more and more on them. Giving is receiving. The slave is free. Death brings life. The empty are full. We're supposed to meditate on these paradoxes, these truths standing on their heads, crying out for attention. And today, James employs paradoxes to address the hearts of those in the church to two different groups of people here. First, he'll speak to the poor, and then he'll speak to the rich. So in verse 9, he says, Let the lowly brother Boast in his exaltation. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Now we know he's speaking to the poor primarily here because it's a contrast with the rich in verse 10. There are different uh, criteria in the world, different things that the world uses in order to assess people and assign this sort of value uh, to say this is person is lowly because of, of that reason or the other. But here in the book of James, he's referring to those who were poor and who were being ostracized in their communities. It was certainly a, a problem. We know that poverty was a widespread concern for this church that had fled from Jerusalem. They found themselves in new communities spread out there. They'd lost perhaps financial security in former positions. And on top of that, they were ostracized because of their faith in Christ. And as we approach this verse, and as I try to apply this, I'm aware that we need to be very careful, especially in Hillcrest, especially in a church like our church, because the, the truth is that the vast majority of us are extremely well off, aren't we? We are extremely well off compared to the, the world around us. So we do need to be careful. We don't want to be guilty of having a, a, a twisted perspective about the way that we live. Uh, that perspective summed up in the, the story told of the little girl who had to write a, an essay for her school about a poor family. And her opening words to this essay say it all. She said this, or wrote this, Once upon a time, there was a poor family. The mother was poor the father was poor, the children were poor, the butler was poor, the chauffeur was poor, the maid, the gardener, and all the other servants were poor. Everyone was poor. Right? We've got to be careful about the perspective we have on what we have. But maybe you are here today struggling financially. Or maybe in some other way you are lowly in the world, in the eyes of the world. Maybe you are pushed aside or forgotten Maybe in your heart you just you feel that pressure, the, the status pressure, always needing to be more in the eyes of the world, always striving to be more. What are you to do? James has a word for you, and his word for you is this, you boast. You are to boast. Now that at first doesn't seem right to us, does it? Isn't boasting bad? Isn't that the very problem we are to avoid? We tend to think of boasting as only wrong, but there is a kind of boasting in the Bible that is right. It's not the kind of boasting that takes pride in self, not looking at self and taking pride in what we see there. It's not the kind of boasting. James is not talking about boasting in the situation. He's not saying boast in your poverty. Right? There is a, a, a kind of um, theology that has gotten this wrong historically. We call it liberation theology. Liberation theology takes seriously the Bible's 
a message of having compassion for the poor and its mandate to the rich to stop oppressing the poor. We see that throughout Scripture. But then it blurs theological lines when it equates being poor with being part of that category of the righteous, like they are one and the same. It creates a false criteria for what it means to be the people of God. You can be rich or poor and still be righteous or wicked according to Scripture. You can be poor and be wicked, be violent and proud and greedy. You can be poor and hate God for the way that your life has turned out. In lack, the believer is called to steadfastness that trusts God and that loves God still and that comes to God in need. So James is not talking about boasting in poverty itself or about boasting in self. What he's talking about here is the boasting that is boasting in the Lord. This is a, a category of, in the Bible of good boasting. This is what boasting means here. It means rejoicing in something, reveling in something, glorying in something. The tone of this category was set by the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24, he says this, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord." kind of boasting James is talking about is not a boasting that looks to self, it's a boasting that looks to him. And we see especially in Paul this call to to boast in the Lord. We sing in this church, what do we sing? I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. So James calls the lowly, the despised in the world's eyes to boast in what is his or hers In the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, let him boast in his exaltation. The Greek word means his height or his high position, the one who is despised in the world or looked down upon in the world. It's the same word that refers to the realm from which the Spirit descends when he's given as a gift to the church. The same word that refers to the realm to which Christ ascended after his resurrection, And so Paul writes in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, that actually while you live on this earth, you're not really primarily a citizen of, you don't belong here, you're a citizen of heaven. We await the return of Christ. We await the day where our, our lowly bodies will be transformed into glorified bodies, but still Paul says you are now a citizen of heaven. By faith, we belong to another realm. So you may be lowly, In the eyes of the world, and at that same moment in Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places, an heir of the promise, inheritance guaranteed and kept in heaven for you, and a future participator in his glory that is going to be revealed. If you want to talk about status, how about that for a status? You may be lowly in their eyes, but in heaven's eyes you are rich. Now take real stock in your heart of this today and don't brush this off as not applicable to you. Christian, are you possibly today too concerned about your status in the eyes of the world? 
Are you always striving to be admired on its terms or to be valuable by its standards? What is it that matters most to you? Your place on the corporate ladder or your position, your status in God's kingdom? The size of your investment portfolio or the splendor of your Savior? James is saying in this passage, don't boast in the things that the world boasts in. Don't set your hopes in them. Boast in who you are in Christ. Paul put it this way in Colossians 3, 2-3. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died. You've died to the world. You've died to its opinions. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. For those who are looked down upon in the eyes of the world, James is saying, look past that to the way that your father sees you. What does the opinion of the world matter next to his opinion, next to the opinion of your father who Zephaniah 3.17 says, rejoices over you with gladness, who quiets you with his love, who exalts over you with loud singing, who cares what they say about you. What is their opinion next to the opinion of him upon whose heart your very name is written? So boast, but boast in his love. Boast in the fact that you are a forgiven child of his, that you are adopted into his family. He is preparing a place for you and you will dwell forever with him as his child. Secondly, James addresses a paradoxical command now to the rich. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Now, maybe you scratch your head. What does he mean, boast in his humiliation? And scholars likewise have scratched their heads about this, and there is debate. Who is James speaking to in this verse? Some say he's speaking to rich unbelievers who were oppressing the Christians in the church, and others say, no, he's speaking to rich believers as well in the context of the body of Christ. So if he, he's speaking to unbelieving oppressors, James is, is speaking then uh, sarcastically here or ironically saying, go ahead and boast. All you really have that will last is an approaching judgment, you who oppress the poor. All you have is a condemnation to come. Boast in your humiliation. I believe personally it's more likely that he's speaking to Christians here, that when he says brother there, it refers not just to um, the lowly brother, but also to the rich brother, and that he maintains the, the same positive use of the word boast, saying, rich brother, you have much to boast about. <coughs> you have much to glory in. You have much to revel in, and it isn't your wealth. It isn't what you have. It isn't your elevated position in the world. It's your identification with Christ and His people, which is sometimes a matter of humiliation in the eyes of the world. You have the privilege of entering into and rejoicing in something that the world frowns upon, but that is glorious beyond comparison. Christ Jesus as your Savior, what He has done for you and who He is for you. James is saying your dependence is on Jesus. It is not on yourself. Your dependence is not upon your status, upon your wealth, what you have. Boast in your dependence. Boast in your need, in your inability to save yourself. Boast in the truth that you are nothing more than a lowly sinner who has been saved by grace. Paul Tripp says this, listen, 
Grace absolutely levels the playing field in this verse. And that man of grand possessions and grand accomplishments and grand power stands before God as one who is unable to earn, deserve, or merit his favor. He has one plea, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Boast in this, James is saying, not in self, but in Christ, the one who was despised and rejected by men, the one from whom men hide their faces, the one who, though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Boast in that. Paul says it like this in Galatians 6.14, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I don't belong to this world. So like the lowly brother ought not to be swayed by the opinion of the world, so too the rich. What consequence their opinion in the light of eternity? What value the world's praise next to the value of him who died for you and who calls you to go low in order to be exalted high? Christ's love is more than the praise of men. A day in his court is better than a thousand elsewhere, the psalmist says. So don't buy. Don't buy into their system. Don't buy into it. And don't frown upon the poor like they do. Don't frown upon the marginalized like they do. You are not your own. You belong to him and you belong to his church, to the body, the bride, those who are precious in his sight. We are all the same before him. The heart James calls you to if you are rich is the heart of King David, who though he is king in this lofty position, can say in Psalm 16, two to three, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. I have no good apart from you. And as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. What is it that shapes my identity What shapes the way that I treat others? It must be this, my status before God in Christ. So whether you are rich or you are poor, James is saying, look to Christ for the measure of your significance. I want to summarize by reading Alec Matias' words from his commentary. I think it summarizes this so well. To his financial adversities, the poor brother says, but how rich I am. To his earthly glories, the rich brother says, but what a wretch I am. Each keeps life in the perspective of eternity. The one against whom life's tides seem to be running and who as lowly as the world reckons things seeks to live in a sustained awareness of the heights to which he has been lifted in Christ. The other, with his rich supply of the world's goods, looks rather to the depth from which Christ has rescued him, where, but for the grace of God, he would still languish, and to which, in his own heart, he knows he is still prone. To this extent, the exhortations to the lowly and to the wealthy run in parallel, and this is the main thrust of James's appeal. We sang a song earlier, my worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, not in my skill, not in my might, not in my power. We sang a line there that I believe captures what James is saying in these verses. I don't know if you've ever thought about the words as we sung them. Two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, both run in parallel. My value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. 
It's at the cross that I find all my reason for boasting. It's where I learn I am more sinful than I can ever comprehend, but I'm more loved than I can ever fully appreciate. Oh God, I have no good apart from you. Is that the truth set in your heart today? Number two, and I promise that point number one was by far the longest point. Number two, the warning that earthly status is fleeting. Earthly status is fleeting. A story is told about a general who, who sat at table in royal court and seated at his table was the, the court chaplain. And in the course of the meal, the general turned to the chaplain and in order to make conversation, he asked, Pastor, in this moment together here, could you tell me something about heaven? The chaplain looked at him and said, well, yes, I could. The first thing I would tell you, general, is that in heaven you will not be a general. Right on that day when you stand before God and you stand before his throne, the status that you possessed in this world, the wealth that you possess in this world, it will not matter a hill of beans when you stand before him. See, to drive home a truth in particular to this rich brother, James backs up his command with a warning. He draws from a rich biblical metaphor that we find in different parts of the Bible. We find it in the writings of Isaiah and in, in the Psalms, and we find it in the words of Jesus. Look at verses 10 and 11 again. Let the rich boast in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Why this warning? Why an extra word to the rich man? Is it not because of the dangers inherent in wealth? To be wealthy is a dangerous thing. Now again, the same way that we don't just equate being poor with being righteous, we don't just equate being wealthy with wickedness. The Bible nowhere teaches that being wealthy is a sin. It doesn't teach as well that you aren't to concern yourself with providing for your physical needs or the physical needs of your family. That's important. It is good to work hard. And wealth that is gained in an honest way with glory given to God and a spirit of generosity is not a bad thing but a good thing. But while it is not a sin to be wealthy, it is certainly true that wealth comes with great spiritual danger. Wealth tends to lull us into a false sense of security, and the man who trusts in his wealth cannot trust in God. That's why Jesus said in Mark 10, 24 and 25, children, how serious is this? How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. In the parable of the sower, Jesus warned about the deceitfulness of wealth, how it strangles out spiritual life. He warned about the pull of wealth in our hearts. Matthew 6:24, he said, you cannot serve both God and money. They can't both be your master. And in his promise in verse 12, James is going to remind us about the reward of faithfulness in this life. He says the reward is for the one who remains steadfast under trial and who stands under the test. What we see in verse 12 is that this whole section is linked together. We come to verse 9 and you might be thinking, where did this come from? Why is James now talking to the rich and the poor? It's not disconnected from the whole 
He began by, by speaking about what God is doing in our trials, that he's testing our faith. And he said, in the middle of your trial, ask for wisdom and God will give it to you. And he's going to go on to point to the reward that we have for our steadfastness. But this teaching right in the middle, I believe for James, is an example of the way that our faith is tested. Our faith is tested in poverty and it is tested in wealth, both of them. Charles uh, Spurgeon used to speak of the, the test of adversity and the test of prosperity. And he writes this, Oh, there have been some of God's people who have been more tried by prosperity than by adversity. Of the two trials, the trial of adversity is less severe to the spiritual man than that of prosperity. It is a terrible thing to be prosperous. You had need to pray to God, not only to help you in your troubles, but to help you in your blessings. Mr. Whitfield, he's speaking about George Whitfield here, once had a petition to put up for a young man who had to stop. You will think it was for a young man who had lost his father or his property. No, he says, the prayers of the congregation in this instance are, he has need of much grace to help him Keep humble in the midst of riches. Apparently, this young man had come into a large inheritance. Then he writes, that is the kind of prayer that ought to be put up, for prosperity is a hard thing to bear. Now, I know these words sound trite, don't they? Oh, there's two different kinds of trials, the trial of adversity and the trial of prosperity. God, give me the trial of prosperity. I'll bear that one. I'll take it on the chin, Lord. It sounds trite. But there is truth in these words, and I say this because we live our lives, building our lives around comfort and convenience. We pursue our pleasures without a care for the way that the world has its, its, its traps on our heart. We don't think about its traps around our heart. Now, the Bible does not condemn you for your wealth. If you are rich, the Bible does not condemn you for that, but you better mark its warning. You better beware. In the midst of his pursuit, says James, the rich man will fade away, all of it gone in an instant. The wealthier mass in this life will serve only one purpose on that day. When you stand before him, your wealth will testify before God about the true love of your heart, how you saw it and how you used it. And for many on that day when they stand before the Lord, their wealth will serve this purpose. It will just be exhibit A of their foolishness because they put all their hopes in it and they built their life upon it. If you are trusting today in your possessions, if you are building your life upon the status you have in this world, in a moment your life is gonna come crumbling down. And can come crashing down, in fact, at any moment. Your foundation is as fragile as a dandelion in a field. Don't be fooled by wealth, James is saying. Life is but a vapor. How are you thinking about your money? How are you thinking about your wealth? Are you thinking only about tomorrow? Maybe you're thinking 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Maybe you're thinking about retirement. Those, that's an important thing to do. But James is saying, don't just think about 30 years from now. Think about a million years from now. How are you using your money in a way that will matter into eternity? How are you looking to heaven and its rewards and then looking at what you have in this life? May our prayer be the prayer of one writer who said, Lord, 
burn eternity into my eyeballs. Help me to see things from your perspective. And that's what James would finally do as we close now in verse 12. Number three, the promise. Earthly faithfulness will be rewarded. Earthly faithfulness will be rewarded. Let's read verse 12. Blessed, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Now, this is, this is a wonderful verse, and there is so much here. All I want to do and all I want to say today is this. I've, I've mentioned in the introduction to the book of James how people come to this book, and they come with a concern in their hearts. They say, James doesn't seem like a very gospel-centered book. Where is the gospel? Where is Christ and the cross? And they ask questions like, is James just a legalist? Is he just a moralist wanting to give you a a bunch of rules, a bunch of commands to follow? Is that what James is doing here? They don't get James, I believe, and the more we study it, the more I'm convinced of this truth. Because what matters here is what's in the heart. If you're a moralist, you will hate the book of James. If you don't know what a moralist is, a moralist is somebody who, the things of the gospel are not in their heart, really. They're not that concerned about about the Lord and and their relationship with God. What they want is a list of rules that they can follow in order to improve their life. And that can be true of you in this instance, whether you are rich or poor. You can be a poor moralist. And you can come to church and, and your attitude is, okay, I'll come and I'll do what needs to be done. I'll do what's required of me. And in that way, surely God then will bless my life. And I'll have financial blessings and he'll take care of me in that way. What you're coming for is not God, you're coming for stuff. You can be a a rich moralist as well. Everything in life is fine. I don't really need anyone. My life is is fine, but I I do have this niggling concern about my eternal future or uh, maybe a niggling guilt about certain things. Let me go to church. Maybe there's something there I can throw my money at, and in this way I'll be right with God and I'll be fine. But if that's you, this verse can make no sense to you. This verse can make no sense to you. You can't, in the middle of trials, honestly say, I am blessed. I am blessed. You can't, when when all of life doesn't seem to be going your way, say, I am blessed. How do you count it all joy without the gospel? How do you count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds? How do you boast in exaltation when your obedience doesn't seem to be bringing you any kind of temporal reward? How do you boast in your humiliation? If the gospel and what Christ has done for you is not planted there in your heart, there's no way that this book was written by a moralist. It is only a living faith, a gospel-saturated heart that can cause a person to turn their back on the way of the world and to point their direction at the Lord and say, I don't want those things, I don't want their system. What I want is the crown of life, the crown of life. What is life? What is real life to you? Only the heart shaped by what Christ did at the cross can truly believe that life eternal with Him is better than all the best that the world has to offer. And that's what James is offering here. This is the reward. It's the reward, the only reward, as we sometimes sing, um, through the valley I must travel where I see no earthly good. Right When there's, there's nothing of earthly good that I can see going on in my circumstances, still this is my reward that I'm His and He is mine and I will live forever with Him. 
the one who's going to stand the test that James is speaking of is the one for whom Jesus Christ is better than life itself. A heart, a moralist's heart, cannot understand this verse. That's why James said, this crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. That's where the gospel is in the book of James. What about your heart? Do you love him? Or is your heart clinging to what you own, clinging to your possessions? Is that really your true love? Is that really where you find your identity and your worth? Do you love the one who wore the crown of thorns in order to offer you this crown of life? Let's pray. Uh, our Father, we thank you for your word, even the passages that hit hard and hit at our hearts. And Lord, we would open our hearts before you and be laid bare before you. We ask that you would make us vulnerable before you by your spirit so that we would be able to see what is there, Lord, that is not glorifying to you when it comes to our possessions, to what we own. Oh Lord, we pray that you would break the world's grip upon our hearts, that we would not rely upon our possessions not rely upon our investments or our retirements, but that we would rely upon you and look to you as our one true provider. And oh Lord, we look at what you have provided at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, the blood that was shed for our forgiveness, for the washing away of our sins. It is for this that we are, are grateful today. And it is in this that we walk and find our identity, our value fixed at the cross. So walk with us this week, we pray. And let us more and more look to you and be freed by our identity being found in you, God, we pray. Amen.